All right, Romans chapter 16. I was going to take it all at once, but there's really two kinds of things going on here. And so we're going to look at verses 1 through 24 tonight. Actually, I think this is the 52nd study. Uh, So um, we'll be 53 studies into it. We're calling this study, You May Kiss the Bride of Christ, because uh, he starts off talking about kisses. Many cultures, a kiss is the common form of greeting and goodbye, given upon the leap, uh, leaps, given upon the lips, the cheek, the brow, the beard, the hand, or clothing. A kiss expresses the affections of family, of friendship, and of fellowship. You read of many such kisses in the Bible. Kiss of family is seen in many Bible families. When Jacob decided to take his family and flee from Laban, Laban expressed his anger, saying, You didn't allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. And early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. Brothers and sisters commonly kissed each other in greetings and goodbyes. Let's all say it together. Ooh. When Jacob reunited with his brother Esau, you read, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Kiss of friendship is seen with Jonathan and David. David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times, and they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. This kiss among friends and even casual acquaintances was a social custom, not a sensual one. Our Lord Jesus practiced the kiss of friendship. On one occasion, at least, when he had been treated inhospitably by a host, Jesus said, you gave me no kiss, but this woman has not uh, ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. Kiss of fellowship among believers in the New Testament church was common. You read of its practice as a greeting and in goodbyes here in Romans and then in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians and in 1 Peter. Such a kiss became a regular part of church services, and it came to be called the kiss of peace. One of the early church fathers writes, when we have ceased from our prayers, we greet one another with a kiss. We're not going to officially reinstitute the kiss of peace anytime soon, so I'm not building up to that. If we did, we'd do it the way it was eventually done in the church. Men would kiss men, and women would kiss women, so... Uh, you know, it's, it's always interesting to me, the, um, the folks, they always want to do everything just exactly the way they did it in the New Testament, not us. Some of you do kiss each other in these ways, in families, in friendship, and in fellowship. Others hug one another or simply shake hands. Still others are uncomfortable with physical contact of any kind. Despite your feelings about particular expressions of affection, you still greet and bid goodbye to one another. Um, we sometimes take greetings and goodbyes for granted. Uh, you know, the typical, we've talked about this before, the typical, how are you? Uh, it really is not a good greeting. You know that, right? I mean, when you see somebody at church and you say, how are you? You, you're, you really don't have time to know. I mean, unless you're really, so just, so just adopt the good to see you. Hey, it's great to see you, um, and, and leave it at that. The Apostle Paul took good, goodbyes and greetings very seriously. As he concluded his letter to the Roman Christians, he greeted 26 persons, and he sent greetings from eight believers who were with him in Corinth. So he greets 26 of them in Rome, uh, and he talks about eight 
that are with him in Corinth where he's writing this letter. Paul always had a sense of urgency about him. It came from his trials and from his theology. His trials created a sense of urgency in his greetings and goodbyes because he could never be sure when or if he might see someone again. Often he was sure that he wouldn't see someone again. Uh, Paul uh, was in a lot of danger, a lot of trouble, a lot of uh, persecution. And um, if he said goodbye to you, uh, it might be the last time you were ever going to see him. As for his theology, he believed and taught the imminent rapture of the church. And so anytime uh, he said goodbye to anyone, uh, it might be the last time he saw them on the earth. And so Paul greeted you as if he was never going to see you again on the earth. I think he saw greetings and goodbyes as something very precious, uh, very wonderful. Uh, and so we get into it in verse 1. I commend you to Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the Lord uh, in the church in Chentria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Phoebe was a sister in the Lord who was on her way to Rome, entrusted by Paul to carry his letter to the Christians at Rome. She's going to be kind of the model for us of what's happening in these verses. Paul encourages and exhorts her and the Christians at Rome to greet her for three reasons. Because of their common salvation, because of her consistent service, and because of her constant sacrifice. He calls her our sister, referring to their common or shared salvation. And so there should be in their greeting a remembrance of Jesus Christ's wonderful grace. Every time you or I greet a brother or sister, there should be a remembrance of Jesus Christ's grace in their life and in your life. What a wonderful thing it is, really, to be saved. I mean, uh, how can you not just be overwhelmed every time you realize uh, what the Lord has done? Paul calls Phoebe a servant of the church in Chentria, referring to her as a servant of Jesus Christ. In their greeting, there should be a recognition of Jesus Christ's gifts in her life. Every time you greet a brother or sister, there should be a recognition of his gifts in their life and in yours. And he says of Phoebe that she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Uh, as a helper or a servant, it indicates she is constant in her sacrifice for the Lord. And so when you greet a brother or sister, you're greeting a saint who is or should be serving the Lord in an ever-increasing sacrifice. And so your greeting becomes an opportunity to encourage or exhort them in these things, to encourage the service that you see and, uh, you know, to find out what's going on in their life, how it's growing in the Lord, or to encourage them to do that. Uh, you know, I think some, or exhort them rather. I think exhortation, exhortation is kind of a lost uh, thing in the church because people have grown so sensitive. Uh, you know, just the, you know, you don't want to go around all the time saying, hey, I haven't seen you at church recently unless you haven't seen you at church recently. And then maybe it's worthwhile. And if, if somebody hasn't seen you at church recently and they're worried about you, then you should take that. You know, I, I know it always, people always think, well, what are you trying to say? I'm just trying to say I haven't seen you at church recently. It, it's everybody takes everything personally all the time. And, uh, you know, we just need to get over that and exhort one another. My favorite story, I don't have time to tell it, but 
is after a Christian Businessmen's Association meeting I attended in San Bernardino years ago, and they sent a follow-up team to my office because they, they don't know if you're a Christian or not. You leave your business card. And so these guys came in, and I said, yeah, I'm a Christian, you know, and I could not convince those guys I was saved enough. I mean, they kept asking me again and again and again, am I sure that I'm a Christian? I gave them my whole testimony, which I'm sure was more exciting than their testimony. Uh, and even after that, they left me a tract and, and to read. They said, well, when you have a chance, read this and pray the prayer at the end. And I, there was nothing I could do to convince them I was a Christian. But, uh, you know, the Lord ministered to me afterwards about the sincerity of their greeting. I mean, that, that, that was their mission, is to make sure that I understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I did get annoyed with them, but I shouldn't have. Uh, and, and that's kind of the thing that we're saying here. You know, I've said this before. You meet somebody at church, uh, you don't have any idea if that person's really a Christian or not. So just ask them about their testimony. When did you get saved? Tell me a little bit about your testimony in Jesus Christ. You'd be surprised over the years in counseling that, uh, you know, I'll talk to people and, uh, you know, maybe people will come in for a different kind of counseling and I'll say, hey, so how about your relationship with Christ? Oh, it's strong. I go, well, when did you become a Christian? Well, I've kind of always been a Christian. Oh, wow. Red flags are flying, you know. Well, you know, so where did you go to? Well, we never really went to church. I just, you know, and then pretty soon they're off on some, you know, tangent about, and, and you can tell they've never really had an experience with Jesus Christ. And so uh, we need to have a little bit more of that in a kind and considerate way. Some people have a gift of exhortation, but I think all of us uh, can encourage one another, especially in these last days as we see the day approaching. And uh, we know that people are going to be breaking fellowship because it's predicted in the book of Hebrews. So verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ. They risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I gave thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Priscilla and Aquila, who were in Rome, fit the same pattern as Phoebe, who was with Paul in Corinth. They were being greeted as saints who served at great sacrifice because they were willing to uh, risk their own lives. As Paul greets several others, he mentions one or more of these same three things, either their salvation by some descriptor or their service or their sacrifice. And so though there's a lot that we could say about each character, uh, we're just focusing on those three characteristics. So let's see how many of these names I can pronounce and how many uh, you want to keep for your next child. Uh, there's a lot, this is a regular minefield of, you know, when you search, when you Google baby names, this chapter should come up because it's just filled with great names. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. So he was the first one to get saved under Paul's ministry there. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia my countrymen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus. That's a, that's a good, strong boy name, isn't it? Stachus or Stachus. Stachus and study. He could, you know... <laughs> Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. That'd be great for your little, you know, Aristobulus. I like that. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus. Not so good. Who are in the Lord. 
Uh, you don't want to saddle a kid with that. Narcissus is the, I, I don't know if it's Greek or Roman who looked in the mirror and was mesmerized by his beauty. Um, some of you experience that every morning, but <laughs> not a good name. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, obviously sisters, probably twins. Uh, who would do that to children? Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Good, strong name. And his mother and mine. Uh, not his physical mother, but his spiritual mother. And so uh, Paul was uh, giving kudos to Rufus's mom. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon. Yeah, you don't want that. It sounds too much like phlegm. That's for a member of the Monsters Incorporated. My friend just called me phlegm. Uh, Hermas. Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Now, notice Paul greets some as saints, some as beloved, some as in Christ, some as approved in Christ, some as chosen in the Lord. Those are all descriptors of a person's salvation. Paul greets some as laborers, some as fellow workers. By this, he recognizes they are serving the Lord. And he greets some as fellow prisoners and laboring much in the Lord. By this, he regards their sacrifice. And so, you know, just in general, you could say, do I greet people in this way, my brothers and sisters in the Lord? Do I use words that encourage them in one of these areas? Am I thinking in terms of salvation? Is this person saved? Is this person actively serving the Lord? And what sacrifices has this person made? Not so much that, you know, I'm judging them like, well, have you sacrificed? You know, you want to start comparing scars and wounds and stuff. But like, but what are they going through that is sacrificial? How are they laying down their life for Jesus Christ? Where does this person need encouragement? Because I don't know if you've realized it or not, but there's a a war going on out there. And Christians are, are getting tore up. Uh, and when we come together as Christians, uh, instead of tearing each other up more, we need to be concerned about one another and building one another up. And then Paul nails him. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. The physical greeting should be appropriate to your culture, giving respect for those who are somewhat offended by certain customs. The custom is not as important as the content. I will say, I think I've grown in this area uh, not because of my examples I had, but because early on as a Christian, Calvary Chapel pastors can be really the worst guys to go along with customs. They just don't like the customs of other countries. And, and you know, I, I thought guys were going to jump off of buildings because in Tokyo and all over Japan, they required that we wear a sport coat. Uh, and I mean, I'm telling you, guys were in rebellion over that. And one of the pastors that we traveled with in the 80s, his technique was to go up with the sport coat and then politely ask through the interpreter if he could take it off because he was so uncomfortable and sweating underneath it and stuff. And, of course, you know, they said yes, but were offended anyway. Uh, I had trouble because in Japan you have to take your shoes off and wear slippers and it doesn't matter you can't and I thought okay I don't I didn't even mind taking my shoes off it's kind of cool but you have to wear slippers you can't go with socks I'm thinking there's nothing wrong with my socks 
And so you have to wear slippers. And if you don't have your own slippers and your feet are maybe size 12, the biggest slippers they have are maybe size 6. And they're wooden and your foot is hanging off the back and it hurts. I mean, it just stinking hurts, you know. So I hated it. You know, and I did refuse. I was just as I refused to eat sushi in Japan. I just, I just moved that stuff around my plate. And I remember one poor Japanese pastor. He said, and I was like, you know, and stuff, and and stuff, and and I said, and finally I made a gesture like I will vomit if I eat this. And I smiled and stuff. I just, I'm sorry. If God wanted to eat raw food, He wouldn't have invented fire. All right. Now, after all that fun that Paul's having, he says in verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Just when things are going good, there are going to be some at Rome who should not be greeted by their brothers and sisters. Paul says to avoid those who cause divisions and offenses. Now, there are in every church from time to time those who cause these things. And he says, particularly here, they are divisions contrary to the doctrine which you learn. So that's what he's talking about here. Uh, This can mean one of two things. Actually, it means one thing, but I'm going to apply it in another way as well that's, that's applicable. In context, these individuals taught false heretical doctrines which then caused divisions and offenses. And a couple of groups come to mind, Judaizers and Gnostics, which plagued the early church. The Judaizer was the individual who believed that in order to really be a Christian, you had to still be a Jew and follow all the Jewish laws and regulations and rituals. The Gnostic was some kind of a crazy individual who thought everything was spiritual. Jesus wasn't really corporeal. He was just spiritual. And, and they, you could do anything you wanted with your physical body because the real you was spiritual. And it, just, it was just one of those crazy kind of new age ideas, basically. In a more limited but currently more likely sense, there are those who end up causing division in the church over non-essential doctrines when they elevate them to essential doctrines. Though not setting out to cause division, it results in division as they insist you adopt their theology on the non-essentials. And so that's kind of what's happening in the church today or the contemporary church where somebody will get all animated about a, a doctrinal position on a non-essential doctrine. Now, we're really strong on the premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture of the church. It's what we believe. It's kind of our, it's part of our personality. However, I recognize that there are others who take a different approach to the end times. We think it's a wrong approach, but it's not a heretical approach. It it doesn't put them in the category of Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, If they want to believe that we're in the kingdom now... I've got a bridge I'll sell them in Brooklyn too, but, but, you know, we, but we can be friends and we can get along and we don't have to break. But sometimes people, they, they get so excited about some new doctrine. They, they maybe become what are called preterists today and they think, oh, what? I just realized that the whole book of Revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD and it's not about the future. And we say, well, it, yeah, yeah, it is. And they say, no, it's not. And we say, well, yeah, we kind of think it is. No, it's not. Well, we're going to think it is, and that's what we're going to think. 
And you can think whatever you want as long as you don't really want to promote that and, and build your own following. Well, this is what the Bible teaches. And the next thing you know, you have a preterist group meeting, you know, uh, because they feel like they have to evangelize everybody away from the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. So that's the kind of, that's another kind of thing that Paul's talking about. We're pretty lenient here. You can believe whatever wrong thing you want. We're really open to, you know, and you can talk to us about it. We'll talk to you about our beliefs. Well, anyway, that's, you know, yeah, I see that. They believe that. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. We just don't believe it. Here's why. And we can all do the Rodney King thing. We really can get along. It's usually other people who can't get along with us because they've decided this is the essential doctrine that everybody really needs to lock into. And uh, as long as they stay away from that and don't cause division, you know, truth is we all believe slightly differently anyway you ever have the experience at church you finally read something you think is that what we believe wow i didn't know that and you think yeah yeah it is and stuff so just be careful about causing division so it goes on verse 18 for those who are such uh and do not serve our lord jesus christ with their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple uh, they're self-willed, serving carnal appetites. doesn't mean they're just trying to rip off the believers or, you know, get a paycheck or, or eat your cobbler or anything like that. The meaning is probably self-serving in any way. Another translation would be slaves of their own ego. We would say these are people who love to hear themselves talk. And what they do is they find some doctrine or scriptural area or message and that's, they want to become the expert at it, and that's all they want to talk to you about. And they want to show you how much smarter they are than you in that area. Uh, and and um, Paul says, just ignore them. Uh, don't have anything to do with them. Verse 19, for your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. The Roman Christians were making a difference in their world. Paul was grateful for their testimony, but he was realizing that they were therefore becoming more and more the target of the enemy. And so he exhorts them to watch out for the devil's schemes. He says, be wise in what is good and holy and be simple or, uh, you know, uh, ready concerning evil. God could grant them the wisdom to maintain good works and the simple conviction to avoid all manner of evil schemes devised against them. Verse 20 says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. See, Paul had an urgency about him. He's talking about the end times when he says that. He, he believes that Jesus is going to come and he's going to crush the devil in the final uh, battles and all of that. And there's really another wonderful image and insight here. I, I don't think I'd ever really seen it before. In the Garden of Eden, God promised us he would crush Satan. The Savior Jesus would crush him you remember as he was bruised on his heel. He said, uh, the Savior is going to come, the seed of the woman, and he will crush your head, Satan, but uh, you will bruise his heel, talking about the encounter uh, at the cross with Jesus Christ. But here, Paul says, Satan will be crushed under your feet, talking to the church. So that puts us in Christ. It identifies us with him as crushing the spirit with him. Now, it's not that God needs us to crush the spirit or that we add strength to it. It's not that at all. It's just that he is telling us that you are identified with Christ and you are a part of gaining ground against the devil until that glorious day when Jesus returns to finish his victory over Satan. 
It's kind of in the meantime, one of those in the meantime things. He says there's no doubt that the Lord's going to return and crush the devil, finish out his plan as revealed in the Revelation. In the meantime, you are part of this ongoing warfare of gaining ground for the Lord as you serve the Lord. Verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sisipater, another great name, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the treasure of the city, greet you. And Quartus, a brother. Man, these are good names. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. In these verses, Paul's companions at Corinth send their greetings to the Christians at Rome. The mention of Gaius is interesting in that he apparently hosted the church in his home. Now, in verse 5, Priscilla and Aquila also had a church meeting in their home. I think in the book of Romans, Paul lists at least 50 Roman believers by name. So we know the church had at least that many members plus their families and acquaintances. The church met in private homes at least the church in Rome, and it met in at least two private homes, that of Priscilla and Aquila and that of Gaius or Gaius. In Ephesus, Paul rented a lecture hall to hold meetings as well as the church meeting in homes. Now, I only mention that to say that the church, a, a, a called-out group of believers, you can meet anywhere at any time. There's a movement today, comes around every few years, that says only church, uh, churches should only meet in homes. It's not talking about home fellowships versus non. It's, uh, the idea is that the church should only meet in homes. And it's a kind of an anti-building movement because buildings are bad. You know, I don't know if it's because they're not green enough or what, but buildings are bad. You know, they're just, they cost a lot of money and they, they take all these resources. And, and after all, the early church met in homes. The early church met in the temple at Jerusalem. Well, we're not going to do that, are we? No. Uh, they met wherever they could. They met in rented halls. They met in homes. They met out in fields. Uh, you can meet anywhere. So I, I just don't understand why people want to be so stupid about this stuff and put such a burden on people. And so you're happily meeting with the Lord in a church and somebody says, where do you meet? 1900 North Dowdy. Is that a home? No. Oh, brother, you're going to hell because the church met in homes and then they read all the scriptures where you're meeting and you know, oh my gosh, you run home, I'm going to hell. Why? Because you're meeting at 1900 North Dowdy. It's crazy. It's just, uh, you know, the church, just meet. <laughs> meet anywhere. If we didn't have a building, we'd meet in the parking lot. We met at the YMCA. You'd meet in a tent. Meet anywhere you can. Meet in homes. We asked ourselves, do I greet others the way Paul suggests? Now as these eight men seek to bring greetings to the saints at Rome whom they have not met, you could ask a different question. You can ask, can my brothers and sisters encourage me in this way? In other words, don't ask if they do that. Ask if they could. So I'm on my way to church, not to put a burden on anybody, but I'm on my way to church and I'm thinking, can I be greeted as a saint in the Lord? Am I, am I genuinely saved? And I would expand that by saying, how's my walk with the Lord? Uh, you know, is there something that I'm hiding and, you know, is there a, a big secret in my life? 
uh, or am I, am I right with God? Uh, secondly, am I serving the Lord? You know, have I decided that whatever my vocation or how, you know, whatever my life's goal and dreams and all that, do I seek first the kingdom of God? Am I interested in serving the Lord, open to serving him? Which expands just into when I come to church, do I really think God's going to talk to me? Is there any openness that I have that the Lord wants to speak to me and maybe tell me something about my life? And then the third thing was sacrificing. Am I, am I willing when the Lord lays something out before me and I see a need and I understand that need, am I going to step up and say, well, Lord, I don't feel capable or qualified of doing anything, but um, I guess your spirit can do it with me and through me. Uh, and so, you know, because we all, you know, in our heart of hearts, if you're a Christian, that's the Christian that you want to be. You want to be that Christian. We're a little bit afraid of that, though, as well. I mean, we really are because um, I'll just, I am, you know, I mean, when I really look at the life of Jesus Christ and then I really look at my life, I'm not saying all of our lives don't amount to anything because God knows, but you think, you know, Jesus Jesus is always going to be a better example than me. You figured that out pretty early on, right? He's always going to have served more and sacrificed more. uh, But the Lord, he was just sold out. He was 100% to his father. And so we have a suspicion that one day we're going to come to church and we're going to leave missionaries to Africa with no support and that we're going to have to swim there. And when we get there, piranhas will eat our arms off and, and we'll have to be armless missionaries or something. You know. And so we have this idea that, you know, that we want to we wanna hold back a little bit because after all, God could do some crazy things with us and we, you know, we, we're really not into that. And the truth is God's usually not going to do anything that crazy. He wants you to have arms. And not everybody can go to Africa. And, and so, you know, he usually just wants you to do something that, that you really want to do anyway, but it's a little bit out of your comfort zone. And so that's kind of the, the application tonight. It's that, you know, am I a Christian? And I would say the, predominantly this audience would say yes. And then am I serving the Lord? Because I really want to. And, and how am I sacrificing? And as I mentioned earlier, or what does my sacrifice cost me? And where do I need to be repaired? Where do I need to be built up in my most holy faith? Who could encourage me? What could encourage me? You know, those kinds of things. Hopefully, when people introduce you, they could say that you're saved and serving and sacrificing in the Lord, that in a sense you're kissable as the bride of Christ. Amen? All right, praise the Lord.